Prologue. This is the first three chapters. The book of Job begins with the introduction of Job, who he is. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and the man was pure, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Seven sons, three daughters were born to him. His possessions included 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and five male donkeys. In addition, he had very great, a very great household, and thus he was the greatest of all the men in the East. Now, this is the American dream. So the first thing we're told about Job is four times we're told that he's righteous in a synonymous kind of a way. He was pure. Another way of saying this is blameless, meaning that it's not that he had no sin in his life, but that you can't accuse him of anything that he hasn't already made known. Blameless is the idea that I'm pursuing God. I'm trying to be obedient and righteous. Although when I do screw up, I publicly confess it. And yeah, not everybody knows it, but if you accuse me of doing this, there's lots of people who say, oh yeah, we already know about that. He, he confessed it to us. And so there's no hidden skeletons in your closet, so to speak, that some reporter is going to dig up one day. That's blameless. He's upright. Okay? He, he can stand before people and God, and most people are going to say, you're a good person, and, they can, and it's true, because he, he keeps a short list of his sins. He feared Yahweh, and he turned away from evil. Right off the bat, the narrator is making it very clear to you, Job is righteous. And that's important. Job is righteous. And not only that, when God is talking in the divine council, God's going to say, have you seen my servant Job? And four times he's going to say, he's righteous, he's upright, he's blameless and pure. And so eight times, the narrator who is the voice of God, so to speak, and God are going to say, he's righteous, 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 righteous. That means without a shadow of a doubt, his friends are full of crap as you begin to read it. Then he has a complete family, seven sons. That's the number of completion. Three daughters kind of also carries a completion idea because it's the number of redemption. And it's like the family is good. It's full. It's like what could a father and a mother ask for? Lots of camels. This is ridiculous Well, if you understand these numbers in the ancient world. And not only that, He's considered the greatest man in all the East. And it's not just his prosperity, like in a Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and way more people that we don't even know their names, but are even wealthier than them, but also in his wisdom, that people would actually come to him and consider him at this idea of the sage. He's a great sage. So life can't get any better than this. But then there's this really odd thing here. And I'm going to just kind of mention it, and then we'll come back and highlight it a little bit later. Verse 4. Now his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one and turn, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of their feasting were finished, Job would send for them and sanctify them. And he would get up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job thought, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's customary practice. Now, in some ways, you're like, okay, that doesn't seem a big deal. That's really good. But in other ways, you're like, yeah, but that's kind of weird and awkward. There's no implication that his sons and daughters have had like a really immoral party. Uh, just that they, they've had a feast. And in the ancient world, alcohol is usually a part of these kind of things because alcohol is like way cheaper to drink than water. 
and for lots of other different reasons. And so when they're all done, he acts like a high priest. And, and that's not uncommon. Before the priesthood came along in the law, the, the head of the tribe would be the priest for the tribe. And so he's obviously the greatest man in the entire East. He's probably going to be the greatest man in his tribe. And so his sons and daughters get done, and he brings them all over, and he stands them before him. And as a priest, he makes offerings for them just in case maybe they've committed a sin. And that's the part that seems a little odd, but we'll come back. Now the narrator shifts drastically. We're sucked all the way up into the divine council. If you don't know what the divine council is, go to my website and listen to the divine council. I spent like a couple of nights talking about that. And make sure you listen to the whole thing. <laughs> um, but this idea that God in heaven has a council of other, we would call them angels, but the Bible just calls them Elohim, spiritual, non-physical beings. And this divine council he allows these beings, these angels, or non-physical beings, to weigh in on decision-making. And I know that to some people that threatens them. They're like, well, God doesn't need people to help him make decisions. And I would say, amen. But God is also a relational God. And I use the illustration that I do not need my daughters to help me remodel my basement right now. They slow me down. They screw some things up. Um, but I, and I don't need them to help me pick pink colors right now either. I don't like most of their choices. Hot pink <laughs> is not what I'm going for in the basement. We were discussing somewhat of a gray, and Natasha comes up to me with these purples and says, there's a grayish tint in these purples. <laughs> that will go with the gray that we picked out. How about this purple? And she was totally right. But I was like, eh, no, not really. But I do want her to be involved in the decision-making. And I do want them to help because that's a relationship. There's a joy in allowing her to be a part of me and her learning how to make decisions and do things and her being able to say, I helped create that or I helped produce that. And so God doesn't need us, but he chooses in a relational way to say, join me. And he says, Abraham, in chapter 18 of the book of Genesis. Should I not tell Abraham what I'm about ready to do to Sodom and Gomorrah and bring him in on the decision making? Because after all, isn't he going to be the father of kings who will be running the world? This is my son and I'll bring him in and I'll let him help me make decisions about Sodom and Gomorrah so he can learn what it means to make right just decisions about wicked people. And he'll maybe screw it up, but in that case he, he kind of gets it right, but he also screws it up. But it becomes a learning lesson, and God joins. And he allows us to participate with him because that's the whole point of the garden. I built this world, and then I built this garden, and this garden is the template of what I want the rest of the world to look like. And the world is untamed, good, but untamed. The garden is good and tamed. Now Adam and Eve join me and make the rest of the world look like this. And if you don't always get it right, I'll be there right with you. But eventually I want you to be able to do it not like me, but like me in a Christ-like sense. And that's what God is asking. But remember, he is still ultimately Yahweh. And any time we say something stupid or present a bad plan, he can say, no, my will be done, not your will. 
And he, and there are times in the divine council in the Bible where he says, that's a great idea, go and do it. And there's other times he says, no, you don't understand my bigger plan. You don't know where I'm going, and we're, we're going this route. And that's the relational God who's also the sovereign God. And that's what the divine council is. So that's what we're introduced to. So it says, now in the day came when the sons of God came to present themselves before Yahweh. Some of your translations say angels. But if you look at the footnote right next to it, it says in the Hebrew, sons of God. Okay, so this is the beings that are like God. And they're like God in the sense that they also are spiritual, disembodied beings who have great authority and power in the heavenly realms. And God, and we, the, the Second Testament comes along later and calls them angels. Although that's a much more, not a truly technical term, but if you want to digest that a little bit more, go to the Divine Council audio. And then the Satan also arrived among them. Now this is where I'm going to pause. Some of you have been in the Divine Council, you know what I've said there. For others, you haven't. This is not Satan, okay? Not Satan at all. And for a couple reasons. The word here in Hebrew is pronounced Satan. And I know you're like, well, just repronouncing the word doesn't make it a different word. Tomato, tomato is still an orange or a reddish orange fruit. But it's the Satan. And the reason this is not Satan is for several reasons. First, in the Hebrew, it says the Satan. And personal names, proper names, do not have the article the in front of it. So a little mini English lesson here. The article can be definite or indefinite. A definite article is the. And it means the specific person or whatever, like the Home Depot. The indefinite article is a, not the book, but any book. And in Hebrew, personal names or proper pronouns don't ever have the article in front of it. Just like English, just like Hebrew. And probably many other languages that I don't know. But you're not the David, okay, the Sally. Nobody like, introduces you like that. That would be weird. That is totally improper grammar. No, that's improper grammar totally improper. And your English teacher will bleed all over your paper and ink if you did that. Okay? And so the same thing is in Hebrew, which means the minute you have an article, it's not a proper name. It's not a proper name. It's not a proper pronoun. And so that right there says we're not talking about Satan. We're talking about the Satan. In the Hebrew, the word Satan means adversary. That's all it means. And so this is the second reason that this is not Satan. All throughout the Hebrew Bible, the word Satan means the adversary. And even today, when you get into the Second Testament, now don't get me wrong, Satan is real. He does exist. He's been around for a long time. And the Satan you know in the Bible, who's also called the devil in the Second Testament, is truly there. Everything you know about Satan and the devil is truly accurate. Well... Is, is totally true and accurate, and he does show up in the Bible, and Jesus absolutely affirms Satan as this prince of the air that's over the demonic realm and all that kind of stuff. The only thing is he does not appear in the First Testament. That doesn't mean he doesn't exist in the First Testament. He just doesn't appear. Just like Jesus doesn't appear in the First Testament, even though he does exist. 
Just because the First Testament doesn't talk about him doesn't mean he doesn't exist, or then you have to argue that Jesus hasn't always existed. You have to realize that when your Bibles are being translated, they're interpreting it for you. Because going from Greek to English is, or Hebrew to English is, non-exact science. Anybody who's translated any language before, you've got to make decisions. Because is there an exact English word for every Spanish word out there? No, Spanish word or a French word has a certain meaning, and it's really hard to capture that in one English word. And so somebody says, well, I think we're emphasizing this nuance of the word in this context. And somebody's like, no, I think they mean something else. I mean, even just translating and figuring out each other as we use words. Even when people say, oh, I love that movie. What does that really mean to them? Is it really truly the same way that you, some people talk about loving their movies like you talk about loving your spouse. Or they could just mean, I really like the movie. Interpreting people and picking the right words to explain them is difficult, especially when you're going from one language to the other. So when translators come along, they're making interpretations for you. That's why different translations use different words. And it's important to understand the philosophy of the translator as you read that translation. Because they have different philosophies. Because they know they cannot make an accurate 100% translation. So you put them all together. So that's totally interpretive translation that not all translations have. Many translations have gone the route of calling it the adversary or the challenger or something like that. So the word adversary just means someone who opposes you. Someone who stands against you. You can see this. I've listed many locations where you can see this word adversary being used in the Bible. And two that I'm going to highlight specifically to give you an idea how this does not always mean Satan is Numbers 22.22 and Numbers 22.32. And this is interesting because when you look at these, and I'll read this one specifically, this is when the sage or the magician, Balaam, is paid by Balak, the king of the Moabites, to curse Israel while they're in the wilderness. And God basically says, you're not going to do that. You're going to do what I want to say. And he's kind of resisting God a little bit. And then it says this. Then it says, chapter 22, 22, Then God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of Yahweh stood in the road to oppose him. So there it says that the angel is actually an adversary. Okay, so it actually calls the angel of Yahweh the Satan. In the Hebrew, the angel of Yahweh is called the Satan. Now, you can either argue that God literally sent Satan to stop Balaam, and he also just happened to call him the angel of Yahweh, which no one would agree with that. Or you can say the angel of Yahweh is a Satan. He's an adversary opposing Balaam. And then the other place is when you get to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, and it says, The Satan incited David to take a census. But when you look at the parallel passage of 1 Samuel 29, it says that God incited David to take a census. So you either have to argue the Satan is God, because God is being an adversary against David at that moment, or you have to argue that Yahweh is also Satan. And there are some theologians out there who argue that. It's called the demonic in Yahweh. And that Yahweh is actually Satan and Yahweh simultaneously. And he plays both roles in creation. And this is one of the verses they point to. But 
you, you, if you really truly believe that the Satan is always Satan, then welcome to the demonic in Yahweh. Or you have to say that the Satan just means an adversary. And at that moment, God is being an adversary. And there's nothing wrong with that word. Because I can say I am the Satan to sex trafficking. I am the Satan to dictators. Right now, America is the Satan to... Well, they were the Satan to Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein and all those kind of things. It doesn't always mean a negative thing. So there's lots of cases of this. There's only three places in your Bible that the Satan is ever translated Satan by translators. And that depends on the translation. Some translations never translate it Satan because they don't agree with that. The first place is Job. And you see that in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. And we'll, talk, we'll come back to that, why that's not Satan. The second place is Chronicles, chapter 21, which we already talked about, which is not because we already talked about that, that God is not Satan. And the third place is Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. And that's the passage that most parallels Job. Because in Zechariah, you have basically Zechariah is getting a vision of the, they're coming out of exile, and God is about ready to restore the people of Israel after their sins and judgment. And Zechariah sees a vision of Joshua, the high priest. And he's wearing these dirty, filthy robes, symbolizing his sins, his iniquity. And thus Satan is in heaven and says, he has no right to be high priest because he's a sinner. And Yahweh says, okay, then let's purify him. And he strips off his dirty clothes and puts on white, pure robes on him, symbolizing purification, and says, now Joshua can be the high priest. And that's it. After that, the Satan is never mentioned. It's the only time he's ever mentioned. Those are the only three places where the translators have taken the liberty to say, we think this is Satan. Now, why didn't they do the other places? Because translators say, well, we can't call the angel of Yahweh Satan. So they don't do that there. And then David looks at his friends and says, you are a Satan to me, trying to get me to kill Saul. And they're like, well, I don't think Abishai just turned into the devil right there, so it must not be Satan. And then David says, I'm surrounded by the Satan who are trying to kill me. And they're like, well, I don't think there's a whole bunch of Satans that are attacking David right now, so that must not be Satan. And so they really have backed themselves in the corner, and they have no reason why they're translating Satan here. Peter was saying to Jesus that we can stop this, and Jesus said, get thee behind me. Is that what he meant? Yes. And then since he wasn't saying, you're Satan, Peter. He's saying, you're acting like an adversary to me. You're saying you're not going to die. And that's opposing, that's an adversarial role. You're acting like Satan. Okay, so yeah, very good example. Where we see that in the Second Testament, right there. Every single time the word Satan or the Satan, every single time the word Satan is used, all throughout the entire First Testament, it's always translated as adversary or challenger. It can be used as a noun, the adversary, or a verb where it's just they're opposing them. They're standing against them. Let's look at it in the context. Okay, you say, yeah, but what if? What if in this particular case it actually is the most ultimate adversary. The problem with that is this being doesn't function as a diabolical creature. Okay, when you get to the Second Testament, 
The Second Testament makes it very clear that Satan hates you. He opposes you. He's seeking to destroy you and filter you and sift you. And he is like a roaring lion who's roaming, looking for a chance to just shred you. And he's the father of lies and deceit. And he's the prince of this air of the corruption and dictators and all that kind of stuff. He is a diabolical creature who has one goal and one goal only, and it's to burn the creation of God. And he does not obey Yahweh. He does not obey Yahweh. And that is clear. If he's out there raising up dictators and destroying people and sifting you and tempting you, that is not obedience to Yahweh. He is an unchained dog that is out biting and wreaking havoc. And the Bible makes it very clear. You don't see that here. You do not see that here. Okay? So, here, what does he say? He just says, God, I don't think Job is worshiping you for the right reasons. Is that diabolical to ask? I've asked that of many people in my church and my school. I don't think they're really serving you for the right reasons. That doesn't make me a Satan. In Zechariah, he says he doesn't have the right to be a priest because he's a sinner. And theologically, according to law, he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. And notice even here, he only does what God tells him to do. God doesn't say, you evil person trying to destroy Job. God says, well... Okay, well, then let's find out. And the adversary says, well, let's strip him of everything and then see what he does. And who says go do that? God does. If you want to argue that he should be seen as Satan here because he's attacking Job and making him suffer, who gave him permission to do that? Yahweh, which means you have to argue that Yahweh is also Satan or he's acting like Satan in that case. He is only doing, notice the first time he says, Yahweh says, you can take anything from him, but don't touch him personally. Now the devil would have said, screw that. I don't obey you. I'm the devil. But he doesn't. He obeys God right down to the letter. And then he comes back again and God says, okay, you can touch him, but don't kill him. And does he obey it? Yeah. And that's all you see. You just see a being who says, I don't think Job is worshiping you for the right reasons, which is a totally legitimate legal question to ask. And then God says, okay, go ahead and strip him, but not this. And he obeys. And God says, strip him here, but not this. And he obeys. And that's it. You don't see him anywhere else in the entire book doing anything else or saying anything else. And so what you see is a being who has a legitimate question and obeys God, and everything bad that happens to Job is because God allowed it to happen and gave the command. And that's not diabolical. And if it is, then Yahweh is diabolical, which many people do read the book of Job here and say, if God is betting on Job and they've got the secret bet to destroy Job, he must be diabolical. But we're going to address that issue. So in neither case... Neither case of Zechariah chapter 3 and Job chapter 1 and 2 do you see an actual diabolical creature in the way that we see him in the Second Testament. So, and you actually see him obedient to Yahweh, and Yahweh is actually the one directly giving the command. Fourth, and this is the clincher for me, the only way you can get into the presence of God is if you are absolutely sinless. This is so theologically ironclad that it required the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to get you into heaven. 
Not one person in the entire First Testament, when they died, did they go into heaven. Every single time you see the divine council, every time you see a vision of heaven, Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah, 2 Kings chapter 22, or sorry, yeah, 1 Kings 22, you never ever see humans in heaven. In fact, in Daniel's vision of chapter 7, he sees all these strange beasts, and he says, I saw one like the Son of Man. And he can't say it was a man because he's so blown away that it looked like a son of man. It must not be a son of man, a man because there's no men in here. There's no way you can get into heaven. The only way you can get to the presence of God is if you're absolutely sinless or perfect. Nobody is. The second way is you're surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angels that create a buffer between you and God's glory because God's glory would just eradicate you and kill you when you walk in the presence. But that's not a relationship with God. That's like having a marriage with your spouse and a crowd of a thousand people between you. That's not very intimate. And the third way is the blood of Jesus Christ, which does not come until the Second Testament, which means no human can go into heaven and be in the presence of God. And if it required Jesus to die on the cross to get a sinful human into heaven and to get the Holy Spirit to indwell you, then there is no way the diabolical creature of Satan is going to walk into heaven and stand right in front of God when he is way more evil than any human and has nowhere even close to a drop of Christ's atoning blood or any kind of repentance. Okay, this is one of my arguments that I also do not believe that Christians can be possessed by demons. Because if it took Christ's blood to atone for you to get the Holy Spirit in you, then there's no way that a demon is going to share that same space with the Spirit without being eradicated. I believe that you can be demonized, tempted, tormented, influenced, and attacked, but I do not believe that it can enter you and dwell in you if you're a believer. Because that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Because greater is he who is in you than he is in the world. And so that's the one that's like, You have this guy walking right up to the throne. It does not say he's surrounded by other angels. It says that, yes, he came with the other ones, but he walks up to God. And so this kind of makes it clear that when you put this all together, this is not Satan. This is just a being in heaven who has legitimate questions. And if they are legitimate questions, or God would not have entertained him. Because that's the other thing you have to remember. You can't condemn him for asking that question when God says, okay, Let's, let's, let's deal with that question then. In fact, I'm willing to let Job suffer to deal with that question. That makes it a legitimate question. That makes it a legitimate question. Let me go further on this. So by the time we get to the Second Testament, we are introduced to the most ultimate diabolical creature. And Jesus makes it very clear that there is a being called Satan or the devil And he truly is the prince of this air. And he is the head of this entire demonic realm. And he is ruling the world, so to speak, the way of the world. And he is attacking you. He is destroying you. And one day, and he did, was defeated at the cross. His power over us was defeated at the cross. And one day Christ will come back and literally defeat him. That he took the devil, who is the Satan, and he bound him and threw him into the lake of fire. That is true. But why did he get the name Satan? Because he is the most ultimate adversary. And at that point, it ceases to be a the Satan, and it becomes Satan. 
And in the Greek, you never see the article before Satan because at that point it's become a proper name. And this, think of it like a nickname where somebody might be like um, running with bowls or, or like something like in that. That's just a description. It's an adjective or it's an adverb or something like that. But then somebody does it really well and we're like, you're now this and you call them that. And you're not using it that way as an adverb or a verb anymore. You're using it as a personal pronoun. And you've changed the way people understand it. And if you said their name in a certain context, people would be like, what? Their name is Box? Or their name is Bat? And it's like, well, yeah, because they got, that's their name now because of da 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 And you'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But we know that's not a real name. Does that make sense? And so that's what Satan becomes later in the Second Testament. So I'm not trying to say there is no Satan. I'm not trying to say that what you believe about Satan is wrong or that the Second Testament. I'm just saying he's not there. It's not in this particular passage. And you have to ask the question, too. Here's the other one I, I want to ask you. The, my final point on this is, why in the world would God never, ever, 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 ever talk about Satan and all these books in the First Testament and then just randomly throw it in there and expect a bunch of Jews to understand what he's talking about and go on? I mean, he just randomly comes in and randomly disappears and appears in no other book of the Bible. And you're like, well, that's kind of bad communication. Shouldn't that be explained? And I would say, yes. But it's not, which means they understood it as a, the Satan, an adversary. And if you understand it that way, because that's what the word literally means, then there is no reason for explanation. The reason I have to explain why we're using Bat as their nickname is because you're not used to hearing Bat as a name, unless you're a celebrity naming your kid Apple, like Gwyneth Paltrow. And if it totally doesn't make sense to you, that's okay. I know I just dumped something real brand new on you that totally violates everything you've grown up with, and we can talk about it later. But I'll also tell you, by far, the absolute majority of scholars do not believe that this is Satan right here. I mean, the top-notch guys do not. It's hard-pressed to find a scholar anymore who will say this is Satan. And that's why you're beginning to see many translations changing as newer updates are starting to come out. The adversary simply has a question. Yahweh said to the Satan, where have you come from? And the Satan answered Yahweh from roaming about on the earth and from walking back and forth across it. So Yahweh said to the adversary, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth, a pure and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. Then the adversary answered Yahweh, Is it for nothing that Job fears God? Or does Job serve God for nothing? You have made a hedge of protection around him and his household and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his livestock have increased in the land. But extend your hand and strike him. Notice he says, You, Yahweh, extend your hand. And strike him. He doesn't say, let me kill him, please. He says, Yahweh, you strike your because you have the power. And only you can do it. And I'm not going to do it without you because you're my authority. In the land, but extend your hand and strike him and everything he has. And he will, not, he will no doubt curse you to your face. So here's the question that the adversary is asking. I think Job serves you only because he gets good things. You've made his life good. You've protected him from bad things. 
I think he serves you only because he's blessed. Legitimate question. If you take all this blessing away from him, I think he'll curse you. I think he'll curse you. And that means he doesn't serve you for the right reasons. Where might have he seen this? What makes him pick Job? Well, one is his extraordinary blessings. I mean, anybody who's blessed like that, one has to wonder, are you really following God because you have a relationship with him or your life just really happy-go-lucky? I mean, that's a legitimate question. Totally legitimate. But we've also been told that he's been roaming the earth. And roaming the earth, he no doubt witnessed Job's practice of sacrificing for his sons and daughters. And one could easily misunderstood that. If you don't know Job's heart, one could easily look at that and say, that's odd. I mean, usually you, you, you repent for sins you know about, right? I wronged you. And I realize that, and I feel guilty, so I come to you and I confess to you. And then I go to God and confess him and make sacrifices. Or you say, you wronged me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that. I'm so sorry. And we're talking about, like, if everything's going well. Because <laughs> a lot of times it's like, no, I didn't. I'm so sorry. And then I repent, and I atone for it. But we don't think of, like, oh, but what if just happens somewhere there's this secret little sin that's so minor and so minute and, and so hidden that I'm so afraid that that's going to be wrong, that I should atone for it. Now, if you're thinking that way, like, what if there's just some little sin? I, I've been racking my brain. I can't think of anything. Well, first of all, that's, that's oppression. That, that's, that's fear. If you're constantly thinking, but what if, what if I've done something that I can't think about? What if I've done something here that I can't think of? Oh my gosh, I can't think of something that's sin. Like maybe there's just something they don't, that, that's not freedom. And so you're like, oh, oh but I got to sacrifice it. I got to repent for it. Now, at that moment, what are you possibly thinking? If I don't, God will punish me. A lot of times that kind of behavior and that kind of thinking what if there's something I haven't thought about? What if there's something hidden? What if there's something so minute and so technical and so legalistic that I can't even think of? And I'm afraid, I'm afraid that God won't hear my prayers, that he will punish me, that he won't bless me. And one could easily look at that action of Job and think, he's just afraid that there's a capricious God out there that's going to strike him down on some minor offense. And he's just trying to cover his rear end because he wants the good life still. And that's the only reason he's serving God. And the narrator intentionally puts that there and says, that probably is the thing that has sparked people to think, I think he thinks he's serving a capricious God who's waiting for one little fence to happen. And if he doesn't atone for it, God is going to just strike him down. And Job is so afraid of being punished and tormented that he's sacrificing to keep his life good rather than because he loves God. And if you think about it, we all are guilty of falling into the retribution principle. We are all guilty. But God, why is this happening to me? Like, I'm pretty righteous. I'm going to church and praying, and there's no big sins like murder or... or but aren't good things supposed to happen to me? And then sometimes you're tempted to start doing things because you want the suffering to end. And a lot of times our prayers are even about, just stop the suffering, God. Stop the suffering, God. Not, how can you use me, God? What are you teaching me? And I'm not saying you never pray that, but isn't that an innate temptation to fall into? That is in all of us. And I'm not saying that we all do that, but that temptation or that subconscious, I don't even know it, is what we can fall into. And the only way that you might begin to realize in you is when bad things begin to happen. 
when, when you start going through suffering or your children start suffering and you can't stop it, you sometimes consciously begin to realize, oh, I kind of have this genie in the bottle view of God a little bit. And I know I don't really, and I know I don't want to, and I know I love God and he's brought me a long way in my sanctification and my relationship with him, but there's still a little bit of that there because nobody's perfect. And that's what this, the, the, this, the, the adversary is seeing. And he could probably legitimately see that in a lot of people. A lot of people. And that's what he's drawing out. And the question is this. So here's the thing. What the Satan is saying this. I think Job is motivated by fear of losing the good life. And that's why he obeys you. That's why he serves you. Now, we know he's wrong. But do we really? Because all we have is God's word on this. Granted, if you've ever suffered, there are moments where you feel like God's word is not enough. There are moments, and there's nothing wrong to admit that. Everybody has doubts. Even the great prophets had moments like that. Even Jesus, I, he, now, I'm not saying he ever doubted God's goodness, but there was a moment in the garden, he's like, I don't want to die. Please, please take this away from me. I'm not doubting you and your goodness, but you know, there's a little bit of me right now that doesn't really want to go this path even though we've been talking about this for like eons. But now I'm here? No. So there's no shame in admitting I've had those thoughts at times. I've had those feelings. The deeper issue, though, is, see, that's the the obvious one. That's on the surface. Why does Job really serve God? But the deeper issue that is being asked here, the main focus, is not whether Job is truly righteous, but whether Yahweh is running the world correctly. Because here's the thing, if God has a policy and it's producing people like Job that only worship God because they're getting good things, then, poli- then God's policies are failing. Like I would say, if, if you have like 20 kids and each kid comes out and they grow up and they all just end up being good people because they're afraid of being punished and they want rewards, I would say maybe your parenting was a little off. <laughs> okay, and, I, and don't get me wrong. I get that you can do everything right and everything perfectly and your kids can still go astray. And I talked about that with the book of Proverbs. Even God's children go astray. But like if you pumped out 20, 30, 40 kids and they all have that heart mentality, one could legitimately say, maybe you have bad parenting policies. That 20 or 30 kids got all pumped out consistently with that kind of mentality. That I only do good things and I only look good because I don't want to be punished and I want good rewards. But the minute you punish me and I don't deserve it or you don't reward me and I want it, then my whole goodness goes out the window. That means if that's the way that you run the world, God, and your policies produce those kind of people, then maybe your policies are not good. Because if you're blessing people because they do good and you're just punishing people because they do wrong, then are people truly worshiping you in the right way? And then are your policies really good? And that's the conundrum. And so now we're going to deal with this tension. This is the tension in the book. If God truly blessed people when they were righteous all the time and never did anything bad, and he always punished the evil all the time and never gave them anything good, then one could seriously question the policies of God that his policies just produce people who are righteous because good things happen to them. And there would be no evidence to the contrary. No evidence to the contrary. Does that make sense? But at the same time, God is a good God who wants to bless his children. 
and righteous behavior should warrant rewards. I mean, even as a sinful father and sinful parents in this room, we want to give good things to our children. Sometimes we want it so badly that even when I want to punish them, I'm like, but I can't bear to punish them anymore, and I want to give them another chance, okay? And we want to give them good things, and we want the good life for them, and we want to bless them when they do good, and we want to punish them when they do bad so they learn not to do that anymore. And that's what it means to be a good parent. So then now you're dealt with this tension, because if you always do good for the good and bad for the evil, then you're really close to just producing people who only do good because they want to be rewarded. And there's no true authentic relationship of, I love you, Dad, because of who you are, not because of what you do for me. And if you're going through Tim Keller's like prayer devotional right now, I know that's getting really popular, especially in our church. He makes this line, he says his prayer, he says, please, God, help me when I love you more for your gifts than for the glory of your face. Forgive me when I love you more because of what you're doing for me rather than who you are in the relationship I have with you. But at the same time, but God is a good God who wants to bless his people. And that's the tension. And that's his, so the policy is, are you really running the world in a right way, God? Are your policies really producing truly righteous people? Because we watch a lot of Christians, when bad things happen, they curse God and walk away. And a lot of Christians, we find out they were only serving for the right, for gifts. And so that's the real question that the adversary is asking. I don't know if your policies are actually producing the people that you think they're producing. Are you producing good, intimate relationships with people? Or just, hey, you just built a swimming pool, now everybody's your friend. That's the deeper question. So what you need to understand, the book ultimately is not putting Job on trial. The book is ultimately putting Yahweh on trial. That's the real issue. And so basically what the book is saying is, but Job is the test case scenario. It looks like he's on trial because there's like, I don't think Job is serving you for the right reasons. But he is the, the evidence, the case study. And the idea is if he doesn't curse God, then God is vindicated in his policies. But if he does curse God, then God is convicted in having bad policies and running the world. So don't think that Job is being put on trial. Job is just the test case to see if God is truly right or wrong, and he's really the one on trial. And that makes more sense because when we're truly suffering, he's the one that we typically put on trial. Somehow. So here's the question. Will Job maintain his integrity? If he does, God is vindicated. If he doesn't, God is not. It's also not important to understand why Job is suffering. It's not important to understand Job's character. It's not important to understand who he is and where he came from. It's only important to understand why is he worshiping God. 